What do I know of holy? The concept seems out of reach. The idea baffles our puny human minds. Your holiness eclipses our very souls. Your complete utter otherness, the uniqueness of the God who spoke into existence all that is, the one who knows all, the one who has all power, the one who has all dominion. You are the holy God. So perfect in your holiness that your love pours out and declares us to be your holy possession. And you have sanctified us. You have made us holy, set apart other than what we see in this world. It's hard for us to see because we still have two feet planted on this planet. The Lord Open our eyes to who you are, what you're doing, the holiness that is you and the holiness that you have declared for us and will bring to perfection one day. Thank you, Lord God. Speak to us, Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Kids can head out to kids time <clears throat> it's kind of like a successful weight watchers meeting we got a thin crowd today <laughs> i know speak for yourself right <clears throat> um that's all right that's all right because uh i've got a word from a really big god <laughs> and i and i hope you'll find it useful he does not intend for his word to come back to him empty. In uh, Isaiah chapter 55, we have this, this uh, tremendous message of hope in the midst of a really dark times. Isaiah, uh, there's, a, there's a book that, a study guide for Isaiah that I bought in the 1970s or 80s, I believe. And it was, called, it was called Days of Darkness, Word of Light, or something like that, because the times that Isaiah was prophesying were not happy days. But these brilliant flashes of light in Isaiah, it's probably the most quoted chapter or book of the Old Testament at, at, at Christmas time, because of the prophecies of the coming light, of the one crying in the wilderness, of the comfort for his people, of something new that was coming and the suffering servant. But in 55, let's start with verse 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on him and to our God for he will freely pardon for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. 
Now, why would he say that on the heels of an announcement of mercy for the wicked? It's because the human way, the natural way, is not to have mercy on the wicked. I mean, just start thumbing through the choices on your Prime Video or Netflix, and and probably the most common theme you're going to find, and of course, maybe depends on what you've been looking at, but are vengeance movies. Somebody does something really, really awful at the beginning of the movie, and then the whole... The, the whole plot unwinds with, with us waiting for that guy to get his. And, and a lot of times, it, it, if you're evil like me, at the end, the nastier, most painful, horrible death that they can have for the bad guy, the better. Because my natural self does not turn to mercy. That is not natural. It is godly. He says... I'll have, he'll have, he says, I'll have mercy on whom I'm going to have mercy. You can't tell me who to have mercy on. But here he says, I will freely pardon for my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. This is the holy God This is the God who is utterly other. It's hard to understand even what holy means because all we can do is look to God, the only one who is by nature holy, and try to figure out what that means. So it's not really quite definable in human terms, but we know it's something else. We know it's something special. We know it's it's perfection and we know that it overflows in goodness and his mercy and and his loving kindness and his self-sacrifice and his limitation of himself in order for us to approach him and his making a way when there is no way. But it's going to be his way. And that's the only way. Jesus did not say, I am one of the ways one of the truths, and a life. He says, I am the way, the truth, the life. Meaning there's one. The world doesn't like that. The world wants us to believe that there are many ways to the whatever is out there universe. I wouldn't want a lot like drive in Atlanta with that guy. <clears throat> He won't get lost, even with Uncle Google and satellite GPS. It's interesting to me that this is where I landed because this is not where I started in seeking God's word for us this morning. I was consumed with actually one of my very favorite books in the Bible, probably my favorite gospel, at least this morning it is, and... In you know, in the top few list of books in the Bible that I, I I am totally taken with, I can't I can't stop digging in it because there's always more, always more. I, I used to say I, I I used to threaten to end my sermons with with instead of in conclusion, just like <laughs> and there's so much more because there's much more. So much, even when I'm exhausted, and I think I've exhausted it all, there's so much more. I've been, I, 
I've been doing this for many, many years. <laughs> it was 61 years ago this, this summer that I turned my heart to the Lord and gave him my life. Six decades for crying out loud. You'd think I'd have come farther by now. We won't get into that. But there's always more. And, and John, in his gospel, is really quite famous for having, he's the, he's the one who wrote in his gospel, but there's so much more. Down at the end of the gospel, you remember? He says, he says now, now, Jesus did much more than what's written here. In fact, if we tried to write, the, write them down, the whole world could not contain the books that would be required. That's, that's what John said. But he goes on and he says, but I wrote these things. Anybody remember? I wrote these things. Why? So that you might believe. And in believing, you might have life. Ah. So he structures his gospel. I'm, this is a little introduction to the Gospel of John. Those of you thinking about uh, joining uh, Saucy and Jonathan in their small group, this would be a great place for you to start. I hope maybe I can even, even uh, pique your interest or whet your appetite or whatever works for you that, that make you want to dig into this book because it's a special one. He builds the entire book, this short gospel, around seven miracles. How many miracles did Jesus perform? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Good answer. The world could not contain the books it would take to write them down. But he chose seven. Now, seven is a significant number in the Jewish mind. But he chose seven. And it's an interesting mix. So get comfy because my text today is the entire Gospel of John, <laughs> but not in detail. And I want to take a look at these miracles, these, which is interesting because the word miracle does not occur in the Gospel of John. He calls them signs. And once he says wonders, signs and wonders. So we're going to look at the seven wonders of the word today. And the first taking place in the second chapter the Gospel of John. Jesus and his little band of disciples are in Cana of Galilee, and they're attending a wedding feast. It's a big deal. You know, I, I, had, I, I heard a teacher one time say, and well, you know the story, they're going to run out of wine. They think, you know, these 13 guys show up, I wonder if they were invited, and that might be the problem with the wine running out. <laughs> I don't know. But, but Mary, Jesus' mother, comes to Jesus, and she says, Jesus, they run out of wine. And Jesus, in all of his compassion and all of his love, and with that Jesus-painting look on his face, says, what's that to us? What does that have to do with us? That's what he said. What does that have to do with us? And then he says something else. He goes, it's not my time yet. 
What a dismissive thing to say to your mama. But there it is. He said, I don't know what, I'm not quite sure why Mary approached him. We don't know what she has seen at this point. Um, when, When we talk about this being Jesus' first miracle, well, I think that's John telling us this is the first miracle I'm going to talk about. Because when we get to the next one, he says this is the second miracle. And then he stops saying those things. But in between, in between the, the first miracle and the second miracle, there's a hint in John that there was a whole bunch of other ones in between. When he went to Judea for the Passover, which all we know is that he went to Judea for the Passover. And then we don't have any details of that. But when he came back, everybody had heard about all of the things he had done in Judea. Well, I don't think that they were following him around to see what he ate at the local restaurant. It was what he did that got their attention. So, the first miracle that John is talking to us about. I wonder why his mother asked him, Told him. They're, they're running out of wine. I don't think she was fretting about it because the way he answered her sounds more like she was minimally implying something about it. He says, What is that to us? I, I don't have I don't have answers. I'm gonna raise some questions today. You may be going away wondering about the wonders as much as knowing anything about them, but because I don't really, I don't fully understand. But he did ask a question. When Jesus asks questions, he's not looking for information. We know that. He's asking questions to make us think. God, God knew where Adam was when he said, Adam, where are you? That was for Adam to take a look at himself and say, Ooh, where am I? <clears throat> so what is it to us? Maybe she just was feeling merciful towards the family with the embarrassment that they would suffer. This this would be a pretty terrible thing to happen in those days. What is it to us? This isn't the time. And here's the thing. Many of the times when we approach God and we say, Lord, makes perfect sense to me that you would do this. And very, very quiet. And the answer turns out to be no. It's not the time. And time doesn't just mean the moment in history. It's time in it, it's, this is not the moment. This is not the right moment for what you've asked, for, for this kind of a sign. This is not my time, Jesus said. He did change the water to wine, but only the servants knew about it, and Mary and his disciples, the folks in the back room saw it. Because when, when, they're, when they're serving it, they're like, we don't even know where this came from. And John writes, you know, the servants knew the insiders knew. John says, and the disciples put their faith in him. 
So it was just for that little circle right there. But it was a sign. It's a sign. Understand that. That when we step out of the ordinary, out of the natural into the supernatural, and God does something that interrupts the natural flow of things, first of all, it's going to be for a sign. So we look for the sign. So when we, we say, Lord, your ways are above my ways. Your timing is, is beyond comprehension. How everything flows together, that's up to you. I just submit to you. It's okay to ask. He always wants us to ask. He even tells a parable later about a, 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 a widow that was driving a judge out of his mind because she was so persistent in asking. And, and the only thing we know about that parable is Luke says that he told this parable so his, his disciples would learn to keep asking and not to give up in their prayers. Just keep asking. <clears throat> because as a matter of fact, when you keep asking, you get better at hearing him. You get better at the timing you get better at understanding and you get better at, at like the older, one of the good things about doing this for 60 years is that all of the frustrating no answers in my life have become incredibly instructional for me. And as a matter of fact, things that I dreamed for, I longed for, I was dedicating huge amount of time and effort to, and God just closed the door and now I can say, thank you, Lord. Because <laughs> what was on the other side of the door wasn't what I thought it would be on the few times that I've been able to see. And there's a lot of them I never was able to see. But because of the ones that I have seen, I know, I know, why, I know why he closed the door when I have no idea why he closed the door. I don't know that detailed reason but i know the reason and that is he loves me and his plans for me are to benefit me and never to go against me and everything about him is to draw me closer to him everything about him is to mold me more into his shape everything everything every time that he says no to me that's that's the that is the the, the master artisan sitting at the potter's wheel with that sharp tool cutting off that aberration that ruins the look of the vase See, he's making me into something that's exactly what he wants it to be for eternity. That's important. Hop over to, to chapter four. We're going to look at the second one. And it says, it says there in uh, four, beginning verse 46, he says, he came again to Cana of Galilee where he had made the water wine. Just in case you forgot about it while we were talking to Nicodemus, he this is where he made the water to wine. And there was this royal official. We don't even know what the royal official was. We don't even know what, why there would be a royal official in Cana. I don't know. But we know this. He had a sick son. <clears throat> Back at Capernaum, which is a little ways away. And he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee. He went to him and was imploring him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus responded to him this way. 
Unless these people see signs and wonders, they simply will not believe. <laughs> and undaunted, the, the official says, Sir, please come before my child dies. Jesus said, Go, your son lives. <clears throat> it says, The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him. And he started off. And you go on to find out that he gets home and the servants say, your son's great. He said, really? He said, yeah. And they, and they, got to, they started calculating it. And they said, man, it was like the very moment that he said, your son lives. And so the whole household said, ooh, we, we're going to believe in this guy. Here's here's the challenge. You're not going to believe unless you see signs and wonders. And then he says, your son lives. And at that, the official said, oh, okay. I believe enough to go home and check it out anyway. You see, it wasn't, he wasn't waiting for the official to come to faith before he granted his request. He granted the request and then he believed. Don't let anybody give you that, oh, fill in the blank, that stuff. That if you don't get your prayer answered, you don't got enough faith. You're not kneeling on the proper knee. You're not fasting properly. You don't have enough people to thumbs up you on Facebook and say they're standing in agreement with you in prayer. It's none of that crust. God is God. He's Lord. He's master. He has a plan. And his ways are far above our ways. And his no's are as merciful as his yeses. As loving as what we want to call a blessing. Blessing is an interesting word, by the way. When we count our blessings, we start, you know, thinking of things and stuff. The Bible almost never calls anything a blessing. Blessing is something you say. So when God blesses us, he says good things about us. Because that's what it means, say good things. That's what blessing means in both Hebrew and Greek. The stuff is a result of his blessing us. So it's kind of splitting hairs. Did you know me? Should have been a hairdresser. I like splitting hairs. <clears throat> Let's get to the next one. In John 5, he comes across a guy in, at, a, at a pool called Bethesda or Bethesda or Bethesda. There's a whole bunch of different pronunciations and the different writers would try to correct each other. And, and, and it tells about a guy who's lying on the pavement there is paralyzed. Oh, lifelong thing. And a, a beggar, a, a at least he had no responsibilities. And, and there he lay. <laughs> and Jesus comes up to a guy where people gather at this pool looking for healing. And he says, uh, you want to be healed? <laughs> yeah. If he could move, I would expect him to go, uh, healing pool, uh, laying here, paralyzed, um, 
But Jesus was never looking for information when he asked questions. Why did he ask him, do you want to be healed? Well, I think there's a clue in his response. You see, there was a, there was a, a legend about this pool. Now, our best manuscripts of the Gospel of John don't have the end of verse 3 or verse 4 in them that gives us the explanation about the pool and the water and the angel coming down and stirring the waters and all of that. A later editor added that, I think because, in, you know, um, when, uh, when, when he said what he said, been there for 38 years, and, and he says, well, there's nobody to help me into the water. I believe that people who didn't know about that pool would go, what is he talking about? And some helpful, probably somebody like me who wanted to tell the details, probably wrote in the margin of the text. Yeah, this pool, there, there was this, you know, the idea was this angel came down, stirred the waters, and first one in the pool got healed. So it was like a rush to the water. And <clears throat> I, think this, I think the legend is true. I think what verses um, um, 3b and 4 say is true, but I don't, think John, I don't think John had it in there. Somebody's just helping us out. It's okay. I, I don't worry about it. <clears throat> but I had to tell you because it's sort of like a thing I've got. It's my OCD. Um, so what did he say when Jesus said, do you want to be healed? Well, well there's nobody to help me into the water. Somebody always gets there before me. He didn't answer Jesus' question, did he? Jesus said, you want to get healed? He didn't answer. He gave excuses. <laughs> yeah, I can't be too critical of that guy. I've spent a little <clears throat> more time than the allotted amount in prayer making excuses before God. Maybe there's a subtle question behind the question. Maybe he's saying, do you want to live with the consequences of being healed? I mean, after all, your job right now is to lay on a mat. And if you can, you know, get up and walk, there's all sorts of stuff that comes with that. In fact, that's what he found out exactly. A little bit later, he got up and did exactly what Jesus said. He rolls up his mat, tucks it under his arm, and heads off on his legs that have not worked for 38 years. And what happened? He got in trouble for what? Carrying his bed around on the Sabbath day. You see, I think many times we resist what the Holy Spirit is trying to do in us. The supernatural power that is the Holy Spirit in us. That, 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 that wells up in the fruit of the spirit of love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness. Um, what's the other ones? Self-control is the last one. I missed one. Faithfulness, thank you. <clears throat> That's why I'm not an auctioneer. And, and the, the, the fruit of the spirit doesn't manifest sometimes very well. Does that mean you don't have the Holy Spirit? I don't believe That's true. The Holy Spirit is not something that we earn. It's something that we receive. First announced by Peter on the day of Pentecost, he says, repent, be baptized, every one of you, for 
the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So it's, it's, it's not a big deal. So what's, what's wrong with us? New Testament, particularly Paul, writes about quenching the Spirit. He writes about grieving the Spirit. Because Jesus promised, I'll never leave you. I will never forsake you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. That means that at our worst, we're dragging him into it. What you're looking at, Holy Spirit's looking at. What you're listening to, the Holy Spirit is listening to. What you're doing, the Holy Spirit's involved. And that's, that's, why, that's why Paul was so appalled at the people in Corinth, Christians in Corinth, frequenting the temple prostitutes. He says, wait, you can't, you can't drag the Christ into that. We quench and... We, we, don't, we don't want what goes with the healing. I have found that the stuff that I have the hardest time letting go of in my life, that is, in terms of sin, the thou shalts and the thou shalts nots, that, that the, the, the real problem is I, I don't want out of it bad enough to let go of it. And I make excuses. And sometimes those excuses are, Lord, you need to heal me of my sin. And he's saying, you need to obey me. Well, it healed me. No, obey me. I can't. Open the eyes of your heart. You got the same power in you that vaunted me to the right hand of my Father in heaven. The very same power raised me from the depths of Sheol, the abode of the dead. Hades itself pulled me out of that and vaulted me into the heavenly places where you seated with me, by the way. But uh, I can't. An excuse. John 6. Things are going well. He's got crowds following him, want to hear his teachings, waiting for the next sign. And they won't even go home and get lunch. So here he is on the side of the hill with, it says 5,000 men, and, uh, you know, scholars do what scholars do, they argue. And some say that meant there was a crowd of 5,000. Some say, well, they wouldn't count women and children. So maybe there was 20,000. Who cares? It was thousands of people hungry. And Jesus asked a question. <laughs> I, I, you know, I'd like to, I, I would like to have seen Jesus' face when he asks questions that might have been a challenge for keeping a straight face. I can just see this little twitch in the corner of his mouth. <laughs> Where are we going to buy uh, bread to feed all these people? Uh, Philip says, 200 days wages wouldn't hardly get enough here for people to have a morsel. And, and Andrew, <laughs> Andrew must have been a man of action. <laughs> Andrew starts taking a poll. He's like, you got any food? You got any food? You got any food? found this kid and he brought a lunch. What's he got? A couple of fish, five little loaves of bread. I don't think they're going to go very far though. 
I, I don't know, maybe Andrew thought he could start something, but he found one generous person, maybe. And some people explain away the miracle by saying that's what happened. Once they saw this little kid and Jesus trying to share that tiny little bit of food, they all said, all right, you got me. Here's my casserole that I brought for the carry-in. That's not what John says. And we, you know, he, he blessed it. He broke it, started distributing it, and everybody had more than enough, picked up 12 baskets of leftovers. It's the question, where to buy bread? Jesus took charge, and he showed us the source of all sustenance. Give us this day our daily bread. Jesus taught us that is a model for prayer. That's not about begging God for lunch. That is an acknowledgement that he is the source of all sustenance. We move on to chapter nine. Here they are in this courtyard. And it says he saw a man blind from birth. He looked at a man blind from birth. It'd probably be a good idea if you're walking around with Jesus to look at what he's looking at. What got his attention? What What drew his eye? It says he looked at a man who was born blind. And so the disciples looked in the same direction. And they said, teacher, which is it? Was it the sin of this man or the sin of his parents that he should be born blind? Because they were certain that being born blind was a sign that somebody sinned. Which one was it? Because they think an innocent baby born blind, I'm kind of like, mm, I don't understand that one. And his parents, mm, which is it, Lord? We need your wisdom here. Whose fault is it? What caused the blindness of an innocent child? Jesus answered, either. It wasn't about his sin. It was not about his parents' sin. It was this way so that the works of God might be displayed in him. What? What? The tragedy of a baby born blind to display the works of God? Well, this one's kind of obvious because we know how this story goes from here. We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it's day. Night's coming. No one can work. While I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. When he says this, you know, he spits on the ground, makes mud, rubs mud on the guy's eyes, sends, go to the pool of Siloam. <clears throat> Wash it off. And he did. And what do you know? 
he could see. See. Never had seen anything in his life. Now he could see. Makes me crazy when I'm trying to offer comfort to someone or someone's telling me about something horrible that's happened. And, oh, I don't know, more than half of the people say some version of, well, I know, you know what I'm going to say, don't you? That everything happens, what? For a reason. I like the sign that says, everything happens for a reason. Sometimes the reason is you're dumb and you did something stupid. I don't think that's what they mean when they say that. Just everything happens for a reason. I guess in the most generic, non-comforting way, I could say, yeah, I guess so. There isn't a verse, by the way, anywhere that says everything happens for a reason. It's right next to that verse that says cleanliness is next to godliness. Okay. Don't think you can figure out the reasons. You can drive yourself crazy trying to figure out the reasons. You know why? I read it at the beginning of this sermon. His ways, his thoughts are light years above ours. He's making us more like him. You know, when the, you know the you know the best result of prayer. Hint: It's not getting stuff. The best part of prayer is that it's an opportunity to understand the Father better. I've told you before. I'll probably say it until my dying breath. My prayer life changed when I discovered that prayer is not me sitting on Santa's lap with my list of wants. Prayer time for me is sitting at the dining room table with my dad discussing really important stuff to me. Because the more I do that, the more I learn the wisdom of my dad. And I learn why he said no to go into that party at my friend's parents' cottage on the lake when I was 17 years old. I was so mad he wouldn't let me go to that. <laughs> that one took me a while to get over. I said some ugly things to my dad that day. <clears throat> I said some ugly things to my father when he said no. My father in heaven, I've acted ugly when he said no. I've pulled away from him instead of pressing into him. The guy was born blind so that God might be glorified. And only in theory at this point is glorifying God the most important thing to me. I'm, I'm trying to get there to where I realize that glorifying God is the most important thing to me. But day in and day out, 
it's not always the most important thing to me. You know what I mean? The decisions I make, the things I do, the things I neglect, the priorities that I hold, where I invest my time, energy, other treasures. Is it to glorify God or isn't it? How about that? We're up to the seventh miracle already. And you know this one. <laughs> right on the heels of that one, we have the plot against Jesus has thickened. The resistance to Jesus grows through the gospel of John to the point where finally people who hated each other, Pharisees, Sadducees, Herodians, are getting together to plot his demise. Nothing like a common enemy to make enemies become friends for a little while. And, and Jesus is kind of hanging back from Jerusalem and the stuff going on in Jerusalem. Because at the beginning, he said, it's not my time yet. Towards the end, he says, the hour has come. Now it's time to glorify you, Father, and your son. And it's been a journey through. That's why, that, that's why the gospels all have the, the messianic secret thing. Shh, don't tell anybody. I heard one person say they thought it was like, that's like reverse psychology. You know, you tell somebody the secret. Because one thing you can know for sure, if you tell a person a secret, there's going to be one more person's going to hear that secret. And then one more, and then one more, and then one more. Because we think keeping a secret is telling only one person. That's not keeping the secret. So, <clears throat> friends of Jesus, well-known family in the circle of disciples, the Mary is the one who poured out that, that year's wages worth of nard on Jesus, anointing him later. You know, this family were friends. They lived in Bethany, which is kind of a suburb of Jerusalem. And word came to Jesus that your friend Lazarus is really, really sick. We think he's going to die. Would you please come heal him? Please, 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 please. And Jesus said, the sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he sat down for two days. <laughs> so then the word comes, Lazarus is dead in verse 14. I mean, he tells him, he says, Lazarus has fallen asleep. And the disciples are not too interested in getting close to Jerusalem right now. They don't understand the situation. The disciples are going, oh, good, good. And he's sleeping. That's a sign that he's getting better, right? <laughs> and Jesus goes, no, he's dead. Oh. Well, with the next, did you see what he said next? Lazarus is dead, and I'm glad. <laughs> that doesn't sound very loving. He said, I'm glad I wasn't there to prevent it. What? 
That's what it says. I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there so that you might believe. Let's go to him. <laughs> like, what? And Thomas, who we often remember for his doubtful uh, his slowness to believe in the, uh, in, in the resurrection, says, come on, guys, let's go with him. We'll die with him. <laughs> I, think, I think those actually go together. You know, the doubting the resurrection and figuring, if we go with him, he's going to die. Let's just go die with him. You know, Valhalla. I don't know. And so he goes, and it's a long chapter. Such a beautiful, beautiful story. His, his love for Mary and Martha and for Lazarus and for the people who are weeping. It moved him to the point of tears. The shortest verse in the New Testament is Jesus wept. And, this, and Jesus wept knowing full well what was about to happen. So he wasn't, he wasn't weeping because Lazarus was dead. After all, he said he was glad. He, he's weeping at what he, he is. He's standing in the face of the enemy that he came to defeat, death itself. And the passion that is in him about that it wells up in his compassion with those who, who are hopelessly wailing in the cemetery. And he's moved to tears, deeply moved. It says a couple of times. And he asks a question. He says, your brother will live again. I said, yeah, yeah, I know. I know about that resurrection stuff, but he's dead right now. She didn't say that, but I think, that's a, I, think I can infer it. Because it was like, yeah, 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 yeah. I, I, I know, I know that's true. I, I, I see people in the throes of grief who cling barely to the idea that their loved one has not ceased to exist. And to say, well, he, she'll live again. <laughs> I know. It doesn't satisfy me very much at the moment. He'll live again. And she said, do you believe this? Wonder of wonders. He says, open the tomb. She goes, that's not a good idea. He's been in there four days in the Palestinian sun. But they obeyed him. I think they knew when to obey him. They opened the tomb and he cries out to him, Lazarus, come out. For a moment, it must have taken, you know, a few seconds. The guy's wrapped up tightly in his strips of cloth. He's like doing this penguin walk to the door. Jesus had to tell him, uh, let him loose. <laughs> Get that stuff off of him. Do you believe this? Do you believe it when the timing is off? 
Do you believe it when you have no idea why? Do you believe? Do you believe that the God of all provision is still on his throne? Do you believe that what he wants for you is what's best? And, and in fact, he brings what's best to you in a way that everyone around you gets what's best? You ever thought of that? We pray, we don't, we sometimes think we're praying in a vacuum, but we don't. When we pray, any act of God is going to affect everything and everybody around us. And so my family, my friends, my enemies, God's going to do what's best for everyone in the answer to his prayer. I, I can't figure it out. Right. My ways are above your ways. My thoughts are above your thoughts as high as the heavens are above the earth. I guess what I'm saying is the call here is a call to the submission and surrender to him being God. And he lets us be part of that glorification if we'll surrender to him. I'm not going kicking and screaming. Yeah, I have gone kicking and screaming once or twice or more. He is God and he does have his way. The one thing he doesn't do is he doesn't force my heart. And so... I'm calling you today to consider the wonder. Because you know what? There's more. So much more. And when you get all of that, there'll be more. So much more. Ad infinitum. On and on and on. Wonderful. Perfect. I am a lump of clay that he's working on. So I've asked the team to come and provide a song that God picked out for us this morning because that's what it's about. It's learning how to submit. Thank you for joining us and bringing your hearts with ours before the Lord today, before his word and before his throne. May God bless you, keep you safe, make his face to shine upon you, and bring you the peace that is way better than understanding what he's up to. So pray that you go in peace, because as our dear brother Johnny would say, the service begins now. <laughs>